You're going to need your Bible this morning. I have two of them up here. So if I have two, you need to at least have one. So if you don't have one with you, there's one in your uh, seat thing underneath. If you're sitting on a front row, then I don't think anybody would mind if you jump up and grab one if you don't have one. The reason I want you to have one this morning is because I want you to see that we are going to be unpacking the word this morning. There's no, as I prayed in my prayer, there's, I'm praying for no agenda, no, uh, no twist, no slant. It's very easy to bring your own thoughts to the word and your own expectations. And you have to, through prayer and sort of reminding yourself and reminding others, don't bring that stuff to God's word. Set that stuff aside and just set it loose. Let it speak. So there are a good handful of passages I'm going to have you turn to this morning that, that uh, I want you to see. So if, you, um, if you're more of a listener, then that's okay. But if I would like it if you would turn where I, I ask you to turn this morning. First place I want you to turn this morning where what's going to be home base for us is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We've been investing in a passage of Scripture the last few weeks. We have another week in this section of Scripture before we move on to chapter 4. And as the living Word continues to speak or speaks and it's living, this this passage is proving to be living. Passage, sermon after sermon is coming out of this passage. So we're just going to let it speak. It's far from exhaustive, but it's um, definitely been rich. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through verse 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is a quote from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This passage, Psalm 95, was written at the tail end of the Babylonian exile when the temple was newly rebuilt and probably maybe one of their, maybe one of their first worship services when the temple was rebuilt and reopened for worship. But it's pointing back to a time in the life of Israel, probably seven, 800 years earlier by this point in the, in the story of the Exodus, where the nation of Israel was guilty of unbelief, the sin of unbelief, and God swore in his wrath there would be a million sandy graves in the wilderness. And the wilderness, instead of being a pathway, became a big sandy graveyard. This Hebrews preacher He's pointing these folks back to that story. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
I want to break this passage down just briefly, verses 12 through 15 or so, and then we're going to spend most of our time together this morning unpacking verses 16 through 18. 12 and 13, we've looked at together as a church. There's some really sweet messages here about what the church does, what we are as a people. Take care, brothers. That take care could be translated see to it, as in tend to it, brothers, church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, people of God, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. It's a great picture of the church's involvement Yes, in the life of individual believers. It may be countercultural, but it's uber biblical that the church is involved in the life of even individual walks. Then in verse 13, here is how we deal with unbelieving hearts. Here is the medicine for unbelieving hearts, the vaccine in some ways, the medicine, the anti-venom, is to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Vaccine, medicine, and anti-venom for unbelief is daily exhortation. Now, let me prepare you for something. The daily exhortation, this anti-venom, this medicine, this vaccine for unbelief is not cheesy, quippy sayings. We don't encourage one another with cheesy, lame, quippy sayings about deep and rich and massive truth. We exhort one another with reminders of what God said. That's exhortation at its best. That's encouragement at its best. We'll deal with maybe some of those lame sayings later in in the morning. Verse 14, we're going to unpack a little bit of verse 14 and 15, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time in 16 through 18. Verse 14, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, there's two phrases in this passage, two words in this passage that help us sort of get the gist of what's being said there. The word, uh, we, or the phrase we share in Christ, this we share is translated from the original language could mean, could be translated partners. We're partners with Christ. It's a business term. There's another term in this passage that's also used in ancient business, Greek term, is the term firm. And these words partners and firm, firm can also be translated sure or certain Those two terms point towards sort of this business idea. This may be new for you to think about. It's new for me to think about this business idea that the relationship between Christ and the church is conceived in the binding terms of business partnership. At least in this passage it is. The binding terms of business partnership. Now here's the good news. We can totally rely on the faithfulness of our business partner. That's sure. He's already pointed that out in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. There's no doubt whatsoever about the faithfulness of our business partner. But here's the reality. We, too, must display good faith. 
We too must display good faith. We are in obligation to display good faith under obligation. We share in Christ, people of God, provided we don't break contract by bailing on our covenant partner. Hear what I said there. That's going to be the point of this morning. We share in Christ, people of God, provided we don't bail on our covenant partner. We are partners with Christ, and we are expected to persevere and go the distance with him. We're expected to as business partners until the realization of the promise. That's what's being said here in this passage. We are expected to persevere and go the distance with him until, until the realization of the promise. We're gonna unpack this in a moment. Now, verse 15, all verse 15 does is to restate the argument. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like your forefathers did at this point in the Hebrews church, their forefathers about 1,500 years earlier. Don't harden your hearts like those guys. Now, verses 16 through 18 are so cool. The Hebrews preacher uses devices throughout the, the sermon, really what, it, what the book of Hebrews is. It's a big sermon. He uses devices that are literary devices that are sort of hard to see unless you really camp out. I'm gonna show you two of those devices today. Here's the first device that I'm gonna show you is a series of questions. He asks a question and he answers the question with another question. It's like his sort of rhetoric and sort of his device that he's using to make an, an important point. And they break down in verses 16, 17, and 18. Listen to this, verse 16, the first question. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Now he's gonna answer the question with a question. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? Now, there's an important point to each of these series of questions. And the, the points get more and more important, more and more grave, the point that he's making. Here's the first point from just that first question, first two questions in verse 16. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? The point to that first two questions is the delivered can rebel. <clears throat> That's not really hard. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. In fact, most of our Bible, especially the Old Testament, shows that that's true. The nation of Israel proved that or and or, to borrow the hymn, hymn writer, they proved it or and or. The delivered can rebel. If there's any doubt then just, man, I encourage you, just start reading. Likely you could let your Bible fall open to any point and find example after example where the delivered can rebel. Now, the next two questions. Verse 17, listen to it. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it, he answers it, was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You hear these things getting more and more potent? 
Here's the point to the second couple of questions. The sinful can provoke God. The first one was the sinful, or excuse me, the delivered can rebel. But here's the point of the second one. The sinful can provoke God. Now, I don't think there's any doubt about the first one. We all know, hey, man, the delivered can rebel. But there may be some measure of doubt, some level of doubt in this second one. He said something here that contemporary Christianity may doubt just a little bit. You mean we can provoke God? Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, in a counseling session this week, I reminded a believer that on our best day and on our worst day that we wear an alien righteousness. That ought to be good news to everybody. That is absolutely and completely true. On our best day and on our worst day, we wear an alien righteousness. We are saved by Christ's work alone. Right? Man, we can, we can enjoy that. So if that's true, then how then could the sinful provoke God? Maybe it's our worst day. If we're saved by the work of Christ alone, how then can the sinful provoke God? Let's not deal with how. Let's deal first with if. Let's deal with if this side of the cross, if there is the potential <clears throat> for us to provoke God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> I'm just going to show you three passages. I think if you're reading with your eyes open, you can see plenty of examples of this, even this side of the cross. But I'm just going to show you three, Ephesians chapter 5. And here's why I brought <clears throat> my um, additional Bible up here. This is one of the ESV study Bibles. If you don't have a study Bible or you don't have a Bible, I would recommend the ESV study Bible. It is a big joker. That's, that's kind of a bummer about it. It's huge. Christy has a version that's much smaller. It's still thick, but it, it's smaller. But man, I'm telling you, the notes in this thing are amazing. In fact, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a passage to you, and then I'm going to read you the note. Just so you know, I'm not cooking something up. All right? Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to this passage, beginning in verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 through 6 or so. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, he's writing to a church. Realize this. He's writing to the Ephesian church. Let there be, church, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, he could be talking about total people that they're thinking about that are absolute unbelievers. They've never made any sort of profession of faith. They haven't begun to follow Christ. They may not even be there hearing the reading of this passage. Listen to what he says next. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, down in the note in the ESV study Bible, it's just a great note. And that's why I brought this hefty Bible up here. Chapter 5, verse 6, here's the note. A common deception throughout church history has been the notion that professing Christians can lead 
unrepentant, sinful lives after conversion to Christ and not suffer the consequences. But these practices lead to the wrath of God in judgment. There's a great reference here, Revelation chapter 2, verses 21 and 20 through 23. These practices lead to the wrath of God in judgment, sons of disobedience. This Hebrew-inspired phrase describes people who habitually live in disobedient sin without repentance and thereby prove themselves to be children of the devil, like Judas, the son of destruction. You've got to know that Judas traveled with the apostles, the disciples at that point, for a three-year ministry. And he didn't wear like a black hat and six shooters on each side, dressed like Sam Cobra. He was likely the most trusted one among them. He likely went out when Jesus sent out the disciples to preach and heal and teach. And there's no indication that he was like ineffective. There's no sign leading up to the story of the passion that that one little mention that he used to rob the coin purse. But there's no sign that he's traveling about like this Sam Cobra ready to strike. This picture of apostasy is all over our Bibles. That's just one little passage that suggests that we can, in fact, anger God. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at the next one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is far from exhaustive. It's just something that I thought would give you a sampling. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul here uses much of the same device that the Hebrews preacher uses, pointing back to the people of Israel to help the Corinthians make sense of their faith. Consider the people of Israel in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. He's talking about the sacrificial system. Whenever you brought sacrifices to the temple or tabernacle, the worshiper ate some of the food. He ate some of the sacrifice, as did the priest. He's saying, are you not participants in the offering? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He's writing to them here about idolatry. The Corinthian church of all churches had one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, if they even had a foot in the kingdom. They did. But man, it was frail and feeble. They had one foot. They were, they were a worldly church. He says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Apparently, it is possible to provoke God. Apparently, it is possible to anger God this side of the cross. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Here's the third passage I'm going to share with you. I'll tell you, too, as you're turning there, There are many, 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 many passages in the Old Testament that deal with provoking God. There aren't a lot in the New Testament. That should tell you right off the bat that things are different this side of Christ. I don't ever want to imply that we somehow have the same situation as we we had then. We are walking in a superior and sublime covenant right now. But yet we can still anger our God. 
we can still provoke our God. Listen to this passage in 2 Peter. The passage is dealing with, with false teachers and false prophets in the church. Just for the sake of context, I think I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And he's writing to church folk. Realize that. He's writing to people in the church. False prophets and false teachers will arise among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Fast forward to verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Man, there's been so much conversation about authority these last few weeks. What's characteristic of false teachers is they despise authority. Like Korah, who needs you, Moses? Miriam, who needs you, Moses? Aaron and Miriam both. We can hear directly from God. We don't need you. I'm going to tell you right now, something that's characteristic of false teachers is they despise authority. And it goes on to say that they're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 12, they're irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant and will also be destroyed in their destruction. Look at the next verse. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Look what happens to them. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They could have any platform in the church. They could have platforms outside of the church. They could just claim Christ and then just spew whatever they want to spew out there. They could be in the church with no platform and just whispering in your ear saying, man, let's undermine those guys. Let's undermine that message. Here's what the Bible really says. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked from his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These prophets, these false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I don't know about you, but God looks mad there. God looks mad there. Listen to what he says. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first God looks mad there. Man, I want you to hear the theology that this side of Christ, I'm telling you, on your best day, on your worst day, you have an alien righteousness. But I want you to also hear that on your worst day, you can 
anger God. If it is a pattern and a character of movement, look at some of these details. They despise authority, lusts of defiling passion, false teaching. You can make God mad this side of the cross. Can you hear that? It's possible to make God mad this side of the cross. I'm just going to think you got to work at it, but you can do it. These little daily sins, these little things you might fall to, like, man, oops, golly, there it went again. That happened to me again. Golly, I failed God again. Is that what I'm talking about? No, I'm not talking. I don't want you riding a roller coaster. What we're talking about here is a pattern of disbelief, a pattern of false teaching. Man, the sinful can provoke God. That's the point the Hebrews preacher is making. Now go back to Hebrews 3. We're going to look at the third question now. The, the, the delivered can rebel, but no doubt about it, man. We can all trust that. The sinful can provoke God. If there was any doubt, I hope just that small sampling of passages can give you an idea that we can provoke God this side of the cross. It's possible. The provocation that the Hebrews church is just stepping right up to is the sin of unbelief, which is the worst sin of all. We're not talking about little tiny little doubts. We're talking about outright, I'm going to bail on Jesus, I'm going to go back to Judaism. Here's the third question. Let me go back to it myself, Hebrews chapter 3. The third question just breaks down as one question, but just for the sake of kind of making sense of it, I've made it into two. There are no question marks in Greek, so just trust me, I can take a little liberty there. Beginning in verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Just so it's sort of read like the rest of them, I wrote it like this. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? Question mark. Was it not those who were disobedient? It doesn't matter if I write it that way or write it exactly the way it reads. I'm not twisting anything there. But here's the point on the third question. The point on the third question is that the disobedient can lose out on their inheritance. The disobedient can lose out on their inheritance. Man. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 1 to say, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The disobedient can lose out on their inheritance. The Hebrews preacher had a developing argument here with these series of questions. And they get more and more grave each question. Each point, the delivered can rebel, the sinful can provoke God, and the disobedient can lose out on their inheritance. So we see they were unable to enter because of the sin of unbelief. I inserted the sin of unbelief because that's the specific sin that they were guilty of. And that's the specific sin that the Hebrews church is in danger of. We see they were unable to enter because of the sin of unbelief. Now it says here, we see that they were unable to enter. And I ask you the question this morning, can you see it? 
can you see the potential here? Can you see it in your very established theology? Man, nobody's dismissing theology. I hope you know that. Man, that's, it is our bread and butter. But if you become enslaved to something so that you can't see what's being said here, then you're not seeing what the Hebrews preacher is saying. Church, we see it? Do we see it? If you can see it, if your view on salvation has room for it, can you see it? The sin of unbelief here is going to result in them losing, on losing their inheritance. Now, I've avoided saying specifically what, there is in, in, what their inheritance is until now, at least today. What inheritance are they in danger of losing due to unbelief? I will say this. It's not the promised land. They're not in danger of losing the promised land. They already lost the promised land. Rome owns it. They live there. These guys don't, I believe. I believe they live in Rome or somewhere in the Roman Empire. But the Jews as a whole, they've long since lost the, the promised land. They're not in danger of losing their inheritance, speaking of promised land. They're in danger of losing something far more grave. And here's the problem. Some can't fathom that they could lose their eternal inheritance because of fear that someone could lose their salvation. That's leaning in the creepy saying direction that I've been talking about, that I mentioned earlier. If your theology and your worship is driven by quippy sayings, man, those quippy sayings are frail, feeble. We're going to deal with this question over the course of the rest of the morning. Can you lose your salvation? Is that what's being said here? It's an important question. Now, let me first show you that I think he's talking about here clearly eternal inheritance. The other device I mentioned to you that the Hebrews preacher uses throughout the book in this case, he doesn't use a bunch of questions like he did in chapter 3 there throughout the book, but something he uses throughout the book is another device called the lesser to greater device. I don't know if it's called that. That's what I'm calling it. But it is an argument device, a rhetoric device. If this is true, then how much more is this true? If you've been paying attention in Hebrews, you know we've already encountered a couple of those. Look at these. Chapter 2, turn to page before, verses 2 and 3. I want you to see this. This is important. This is the first exhortation in the, in the letter of Hebrews, exhortation being a sort of a, a charge, a warning, a commandment. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. If the message that came through angels was examined, was applied, how much more will the message be that came through Christ? That's his first lesser to greater device that he uses there. Here's the next one, chapter 3, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses is worthy of some glory. He is. He's counted faithful there. 
He's worthy of, some, worthy of some glory. But how much more glory goes to the builder of the house than the house itself? Lesser to greater device. Here's the next one. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Servant to son. The next one's in chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look at verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We believe he's alluding to the destruction of the temple at that point. That hadn't happened yet as of the writing of this book. The contrast here is with the old covenant and the new. And how the old covenant is obsolete and how the new covenant is supreme. This lesser and greater thing is used throughout this book of Hebrews. This next one's probably the most pointed one. Look at chapter 10. starting in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Man, that is probably the most amazing example of the fact that we can anger our God this side of the cross. But you see the lesser to greater? The lesser to greater? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What's in store for that one is fiery judgment. See, here's the hard part for me. There are some, there are some that, that count these warnings of Hebrews as just sort of a danger to quality of life. If you guys don't shape up, if you guys don't re-engage Christ, I say shape up like it sounds like a performance. If you guys don't come back to Jesus, if you guys don't stay true in your fidelity to Christ, and here are the grave consequences. There are some that are so unable to hear these stark and important pointed warnings that it's reduced to a quality of life. If you don't remain true and faithful to Christ, I don't know what, you're gonna get spanked. Things are just not, you're not gonna be as happy. 
Man, I have lots of thoughts that I can't even share from the pulpit on that idea. I'll share with you in private. But it's heartbreaking. It takes a whole book of our Bible that I suggest just rip it out. Just rip it out because you're dismissing it already. Man, these are stark and important warnings. It is clumsy gymnastics at best. At best. Here's the hard part that we need to hear as the people of God that I hope the Hebrews church heard. We don't know how things unfolded. But here's what I hope we hear and what we realize is that what is happening in the Hebrews church here if they don't turn from this movement back to Judaism can happen to any of you. We're going to deal next week with God's sovereign work of election and how that plays in, okay? Set that aside for a minute. That's true. That's true. But what the Hebrews church is in danger of here is something that any of us can fall prey to if we first follow our heart. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Man, don't listen to your heart. (laughs) That will get you in a mess. If you follow your heart, it's directly from Hebrews chapter 3. Or if you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Both of those things are agents that want to move you away from God's design. If you fall prey, in this case, to the sin of unbelief, you will be what the Hebrews preacher is warning them against. You will be an apostate. And you will miss out on your internal inheritance. Now, if we can believe that the disobedient or the unbelieving can lose out on their eternal salvation, we need some evidence. This makes sense of a lot of passages. It really does. It brings them in sort of a synthesis where, okay, now I understand that. And I'm going to show you these passages, just a few of them, eight of them, eight of them. Puritan preaching this morning, Matthew chapter five. I want you to see these. I'm going to give you a chance to turn there. I want you to see them. It's going to make sense of a lot of passages this morning. Matthew chapter five. Verse 13, and we're going to move chronologically in the New Testament, in these eight. So I'm not going to have you flipping all over the place. I'm going to have you flipping forward, and I'll give you time, I promise. Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Some are just going to read, just going to set them loose, and some we may comment on. Here's the next passage, Matthew chapter 10. Let's just set that one loose. As you're turning there, I'm going to read for the sake of context. You'll be here where I want you to be by the time you get there. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Don't be anxious about how you're to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not who, you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Turn over a couple pages to Matthew 13. As you're turning there, just to summarize the first two, Matthew chapter 5, salvation is for the salty to the end. Salvation is for the salty to the end. Matthew chapter 10, if we endure to the end, salvation is for the one who perseveres. Man, some people want to count perseverance a work. That's not a work. That's just what God's people do. God's people go the distance with their husband. That's what we do. It's not a work. It's not a saving work. It's who we are. Salvation for the salty to the end. Salvation for the one who perseveres. This next one is a parable. It's interesting. He writes about what parables do in this passage. It's something we're going to be looking at next week. It's interesting. The very same message that gives life and hope and understanding to some confuses, confuses and brings judgment on others. The very same message Listen to what he says in this parable. A sower went out to sow, and he sowed, and some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they're scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. He explains the parable in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now this is not, let me me explain something to you. This parable is not about how some of us are at some times. Like sometimes you're rocky, sometimes you're thorny, sometimes you're good soil. I like that. It would help me make sense of a lot of things, but that's not what's being said here. This is not about different periods in your life. This is about the one. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears by practice the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Here's the point of those. If we don't fall away because of persecution, if the word isn't choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, salvation is for the one who doesn't fall away. Hear that. Salvation is for the one who doesn't fall away. Salvation is for the one who's not choked out by worldliness. You're going to see later in the morning a picture of a dude named Demas that was. Salvation is for the ones who are salty to the end. Salvation is for the one who perseveres and endures to the end. Salvation is for the one who doesn't fall away. Salvation is for one who's not choked out by worldliness. Now turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it's pre-conversion, before following Christ, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Man, that's good news right there. Our presentability, our holiness, and our blamelessness comes from Christ's blood and his work. But here's the next verse. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed you continue. Salvation for the one who continues. We're just building these right from the text. Salvation for the one who continues. Now turn to 1 Timothy. The last three are in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, so they're easy to find. 1 Timothy is on page 991 of your pew Bible. You don't have pews, but your Bible that's under your seat. That's probably, it's either the right page number or it's close. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, watch what he wants him to hold, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, he's got two things gripped here, faith and a good conscience. The good conscience is going to be the product of faith. By rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, letting go of that, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Man, this picture here is these guys have made shipwreck of something. It doesn't say they damaged their ship. They have wrecked their ship, and the ship is no longer moving. 
They have destroyed something at this point, and they have departed from Paul's ministry, and Paul has turned them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. If someone wants to understand the nature of church discipline, that's a great go-to passage to understand what God can do with church discipline, that God could refine these guys and bring them to a place of repentance through this turning over to Satan. It could be something that God uses to bring these guys to a place of repentance, that through this they may learn not to blaspheme. But man, they've made a shipwreck of something. Call it a ham sandwich, call it faith. I'm gonna call it faith. I bet they had green leaves. I bet it sprouted up. I bet it looked healthy and dandy and good, but when the cares of the world came out or the persecution on account of the gospel came out, it shriveled up and died. And Paul turns them over to Satan. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This passage is written toward the end of Paul's ministry, and you're going to hear some wording and language that points to that, suggesting he's at the tail end of it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's not talking about he's going to go somewhere. It's the time of his departure from earth. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It's a great passage pointing toward the character of the faith being something that involves a finish line, that involves a race that's to be run until the finish. If we can include this passage in the data that we've collected all, so far, we can see that salvation is for the finishers. The whole book of Revelation is about that, guys. Salvation is for the finishers. It's not for the ones who are the most beautiful, had the best form. It's for the ones who finish. And Paul says, I finished the race. The next one is just a few verses down in verse 9 and 10. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas. In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This passage in love with this present world points toward the passage we just read in Matthew chapter 13. The cares of the world have just choked this guy out and he's fallen back in love with the world. So we can see that salvation is for the one who doesn't fall back in love with the world and bail on God's people. Salvation is for the salty to the end. Salvation is for the one who perseveres and endures. Salvation is for the finisher. Salvation is for the sailing. Salvation is for the one who doesn't fall in love with the world. Salvation is for the one who continues in the faith. Salvation is for the one who's not choked out by worldliness. And for the one who doesn't fall away. So you ask the question, can you lose your salvation? My question for you, and if you ask me that question, would be, tell me how you're defining salvation first. 
if you're defining it as a decision that you made at some point in time, and that alone, I don't know what that is. It may or may not have been a very real beginning. But time tells if it's the real beginning or not. For if one falls away, I don't know what that was, a ham sandwich. It might be written in the front of your Bible. You may work with people. You may live next to people that have something written in the front of their Bible and they say, nope, I'm saved. It says so right there. When someone asked me if you can lose your salvation, I want to understand how are you defining salvation. If you're defining it as a decision you made at a point in time and it's not a transformed life that goes the distance, then yes, you can lose that, whatever it is. A ham sandwich. If though you're defining salvation as a surrendered life that goes the distance with Christ, no, you can't lose that because he hasn't lost you. Can I say that and we all enjoy that this morning at the end of some really scary passages? Can we enjoy that together? If you define salvation as a surrendered life that goes the distance with Christ till death do us part, then no, you can't lose that. He who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. Amen? Man, that passage is like a, a scratch on an itch that's in the middle of my back. I've been waiting to get to all morning. Yes, he's going to see it through. Yes, he's going to see it through. Man, I want to leave you with a passage from Paul. He's the one that wrote, by the way, in Philippians, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. In the same book, he says this. Listen to it. It's so good because we have such potential to place faith in so many things. We can be, place our faith in our faith. Think about that for a minute. We can place our faith in our faith. Our faith should only rest on Christ. Listen to Paul's description of where he places his faith. And listen to the words that he uses in Philippians chapter 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I don't care what is written in the front of my Bible. What's in the front of my Bible might be my grocery list. If, now, if somebody wanted to write a sweet note to me at my baptism, it's not nothing. But that's not where I'm placing my, my faith and my trust. And Paul's not placing his in anything like that. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he's reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He does. Listen to what he says. Man, I don't know anybody that's got a list like this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. You know it's a good tribe. It's the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, man, he's a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Man, he's got one serious resume. In the front of his Bible, he's got all kind of stuff written. I mean, good stuff. And he says, man, I count that. Whatever I counted, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I love that word. Now, now listen to the tone of what he says next. It's a tone that every single one of us would do good to have. Listen to the tone of what this guy, this church planter extraordinaire, most of our New Testament was written by the Holy Spirit through this guy. Listen to what he says. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He goes on. That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Those mays in that passage, they point toward a tone that's in the Greek that you can't see if you don't at least slow down to read it. It's called the subjunctive tone. And what's implied there is he hadn't finished the race at this point. The confidence that you hear in his letter to Timothy over in 2 Timothy, that confidence comes from he's finished. He's at the end of his life. He hadn't finished it here yet in Philippians. And this subjunctive mood is something we could all do with. It's not doubt. It's not doubt. I've shared two jokes in 10 years in this church, and one of them I've said over and over again because it's, it's a good joke because it helps us make sense of this. Brother Dave Gardner was a guy I used to listen to when I was a little kid. Long since dead. He said... They asked the old man, said, hey, old man, you lived here all your life? He says, nope, not yet. You get that? You lived here all your life? No, not yet. Man, there's subjunctive mood in that. I like the subjunctive mood. I want to have the subjunctive mood. I don't want to ride the roller coaster of doubt. But yet at the same time, I want to have the sobriety that knows that I could be lured away by my deceitful heart if I'm not careful. That I may finish the race. That I may be found faithful. You know what it creates in me? It creates a desperation to be part of this people, to walk with the people. You see people that don't identify with this? They don't need a people. I got me and Jesus. It goes back to that whole view on authority and view on the church as an authority. Man, I need y'all because I'm capable of anything without the people of God. I'm capable of anything if I'm not stirred up by way of reminder week after week after week with the exposition of something that's absolutely true, ultimate reality. Man, we could all do with some maze. Not doubt. You lived here all your life? No, not yet. Bind my wandering heart to thee. What were we singing this morning? We're singing hymns that have that same tone, that same mood. They say, I hadn't finished it yet. And by his grace and his mercy, bind my wandering heart to thee. 
because I know what I'm capable of. The deceitfulness of sin could lure me away. My own heart could lure me away. And I hope and pray that neither happens by his grace and his mercy. I have two fears I'm going to admit to you at the end of this sermon. Two very real fears. Not like ungodly fears, I don't think. I think they're, they're righteous fears. The first fear. I don't want to trouble those who are his with excessive doubt. I don't even want to come close to stirring up doubt in those who are his. I don't want to do that. That's my first fear. My second fear is more, I I fear the second one more. Because I know he's not going to lose any of his people, even if I were to say something stupid and scare you. Okay? But here for me is the greater fear. I don't want to assure the lost. Man, I almost want to say a curse word thinking about that. If you're doing that, it's not like, it's, it's, a, it's a, in our Bibles, so it's not like really bad. You're like, man, what's he thinking? Like, mm, darn you. Assuring the lost. No, man, turn to back to the front of your Bible. You're good. What? Rip Hebrews out of your Bible because you're not believing it. Man, I don't want to trouble those who are his, but I don't want to assure the lost. And I don't want to assure those who are in danger of falling away by softening or somehow, I don't know, softening may just be the word, softening some sharp warnings. Man, I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that as shepherds of families, as small group shepherds, as people who are bumping into a community full of people with stuff written in the front of their Bibles? Do you realize that? We live in a hyper post-church context where most people, I suspect, at least most people that I've talked to, have a front page of their Bible where somebody signed it and said, yeah, you're saved. But they've got no use for him. Unless somebody's sick. Unless they lost their job. They're not walking with him. They're not enjoying him. They don't have this. They don't have a need or want for it. Man, we live in a context where if you're asking questions and you're paying attention, you're going to bump into folks that are placing their faith in the wrong things. And something that I think could be the conditioner for them maybe listening might be some maze. Not corn, maize, M-A-Z, maize, M-A-Y-S, maize. Jeff, you were thinking about maize. I know you're sitting there thinking about it. I could tell. Lunch, it's almost lunchtime. How about some maize? Not doubt. Not doubt. Just a mature, deep trust that our righteousness is in Christ alone, and I don't want to bail on him. If I bail on him, how could I possibly expect to enjoy and receive the promises that are on the end of walking with him. Duh. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that this morning 
was good and proper exhortation that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, I pray that this morning was a good and healthy and hearty dose of vaccine, of medicine, of anti-venom. Lord, I pray the result of this morning will be that if we have been placing our faith in something apart from Christ, if we've been placing our faith in some sort of experience, if we've been reducing salvation to something that happened at a point in time instead of someone that we are, that that's come into focus through our exposition this morning, that you've brought that into focus for us, that you've given us a more mature and robust view of salvation. I'm thankful too, as I'm sharing this message, I'm thankful that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. May we never bail on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's continue in song. Actually in supper. Hebrews 10 actually tells us to draw near uh, to the Lord with full assurance. And that's a picture of confidence. So as we take the supper right now, some maybe, I mean, hopefully you, you heard what was said with clarity, but if you're saying, how can I have confidence? Um, it's where our confidence is. If you're taking the supper with confidence in yourself that, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I think I can make that happen. Yeah, I can muster that. Then I would urge you to repent because we take the supper in confidence in our Lord is confidence in Jesus. That's what the supper is all about. It's a supper of fidelity. Week in and week out, we gather as a people saying, I need Jesus as much right now as I did when I began my journey of faith. I'll need him as much later as I do now. We, we never waver in how much we need Jesus or don't need Jesus. We, we need him completely all the time. I want to read two passages um, that just show the compassion of our God and the way that he moves in these things. The first is in Psalm 78, and the second is in Roman, Romans 2. Psalm 78, 37 says of Israel, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. I just wrote, wow, real big in the margin of my Bible. He restrained his anger often. If you think that you can live in such a manner that God would not need to restrain his anger, I would ask you to reconsider that in light of the message this morning. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So you see this picture of provoking God and unbelief, and you see this picture of God persevering by refraining from his anger. 
And Romans 2 explains it a little bit more. It says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You can't say, well, I made a decision in the past, but I'm going to keep doing whatever I want in unbelief. He, Paul's saying, that's quite the presumption. You, that's presumptuous. You, you can't do that. Do you suppose, you who judge those who practice such things, that you do, them, do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Then it says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. So you see a picture of God being patient and kind and refraining his anger, but then you see a picture that his anger will not always be refrained. There will come a time of judgment. So how do we take the supper this morning? We take it in a repentant manner. There must be repentance as we take this supper. Don't take it in an unrepentant manner. Actually sit and think through and confess to the Lord as we pass the elements. Think about that phrase that Ben used, pattern and character of movement. Consider your pattern and character of movement. Don't doubt your salvation because you stepped off into sin one time yesterday and you repented at that moment. Don't say, well, didn't, what was that? Look at your pattern and the character of your movement in your life. And if there's something that's sinful there, what I want you to see is you're putting your faith in that thing. That th like it's not just sort of a hurdle. It's faithlessness and it's unbelief because you're putting your faith in that thing that you're saying, I will persevere in this sin because I need this thing, whatever it might be. So do not take the supper in an unrepentant manner. The other thing that overwhelmed me as I was listening this morning that I want us to consider as we take the supper, since it is a supper of fidelity to our Lord, who else needs to hear the message that you heard this morning? I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of people that I know that don't give a lot of thought to persevering. I'm thinking of family members that I know that would call themselves a Christian because of something that they did a long time ago. But the, 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 the urgency of perseverance and the urgency of daily obedience to our Lord really isn't on the radar. So don't just count them as hell-bound, but don't discount that they could be. As long as it's called today, don't presume upon the riches of His kindness and His patience because that is meant to lead us to repentance. So allow that to lead us to repentance this morning as we take the supper and allow it to for you to consider who you need to stir up by way of reminder potentially that they might also be led to repentance. One second, Clay. During the supper, man, I was thinking about this. Cool thing about Scott doing the supper, I had a chance to think on it. Listen to this. This is so great. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. Familiar? And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now you gotta know Judas knew who he was. I mean, it's, he knows what he's about to do. He knew. And they, listen, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I? 
Could it be I, Lord? What I love in that is there's a room full of guys there. One of them's guilty, and the rest are going, search me, Lord. Could it be me? Subjunctive mood right there, bro. Man, is it I? I'm sitting here thinking as I'm taking this supper, is it I, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, don't let me leave this table. Don't let me leave or depart from you for any reason. Is it I? I thought about that Second Peter passage that I read to you, those who had feasted with you. Those who had feasted with you they, though they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled them. That's a picture of Judas right there. They're entangled with them and they're overcome the, and, and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If you have some friends or family members that really know, have no more use for God, yet they think that they do, they think that they're square with God, but they have no more use for him, realize their state is worse than in the first If they've eaten of the supper, realize Judas ate the meal before he left. Do you see that? He took of the supper, and then he left. Realize if you have friends or family members, this may be an Esther moment for you that you can act on while it's called today, where you're like, okay, who knows how this thing's going to go? They might want to cut my head off, or they might repent. They might hear the words that you share with them, and that might be, that warning might be what God uses to bring them back into the faith. Realizing that if they knew Christ, enjoyed him, walked with, walked with him, feasted with God's people, they've escaped the defilements of the world, they had a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, if they begin getting entangled with the world again and walk away from him, their state is worse than in the first before they even knew him. If you love those family members, you've got work to do. Esther's, you've been equipped for something this morning. So while it's called today, you've got work to do.